Investing involves risk. The value of an investment and the income from it may fall as well as rise and investors might not get back the full amount invested. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. The mention of any particular security or strategy should not be considered as a recommendation. For further information on the Brunner Trust, please go to www.brunner.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the seventh and latest installment of Connected Investor, the podcast from the Brunner Investment Trust. I'm Joe Lynham, a BBC presenter who was a business correspondent for very many years. And in this podcast, we're going to tackle a whole myriad of issues which may affect you, the markets and, of course, the Brunner Fund. And I'm joined, as ever, by Matthew Tillett, the lead portfolio manager of Brunner Investment Trust in the office. Matthew, welcome back to the office. Or is that commiserations to be back to the office? No, it's, it's, it's good good to be back, Joe. Good to be back and, and good to see you as well. We're going to take a deeper look at the second most important country in economic terms in the world, China, where there appears to be something of a big shift by the ruling Communist Party this year. For three decades, it had looked the other way as some of its citizens became billionaires, so long as jobs were created and no one strayed into politics. But suddenly that blind eye has opened up and we've seen a few examples of swift action against high profile millionaires and even entire sectors within the Chinese economy. President Xi Jinping refers to it as his common prosperity drive. What do you think? What do you make of it, Matthew? Yeah, so, I mean, I think I think what's happening, Joe, is that the government um, has become increasingly concerned with not so much the pace of growth, but the path of economic growth in China. So it's becoming uh, it's, it's it's become rather unbalanced and is accentuating the inequalities within the society. And I think from their perspective, they they obviously have this tacit uh, understanding with the population that you know, they stay in power, but everybody gets. Um, a lot wealthier over time and living standards improve. But if it starts to look like that's only happening for segments of the population, uh, that the lower and middle classes become disaffected, uh, then that's potentially a major a major problem for them and, and you know, the mandate that they have to, to, to rule the country. So I think that's kind of what's behind some of these uh, rulings and shifts in policy and changes in regulation uh, that we've that we've seen happen. But to the outside world, Matthew, it does look as if China is tilting away from being uh, a relatively open, but albeit politically communist country uh, in order to do this protection of the ordinary man on the street or a man and woman on the street. Yeah, I think that there the, the definitely is a, an, an element of that going on, although I, I, I'd sort of perhaps caution a, a bit in sort of how... how how open really was it before? I mean, it's always been a, you know, essentially a dictatorship. Um, uh, you know, the government has effectively always been in control of pretty much every every sector and and, and yeah, I mean, really every every company as well. I mean, you know, even these these uh, you know, big kind of technology companies that that you can invest in as as, as uh, Western investors. You know, when you buy those shares, American depository receipts in uh, in the US. Uh, or indeed even the listings in, in Hong Kong, you know, most of these are structured in such a way that you don't actually have the property rights in the way that you do uh, buying a, a share in the UK or, or in, the, in the US. You don't actually uh, own the shares that you're buying. 
No, they well, they use they use these complex um, structures called variable interest entities, um, which uh, sort of affect, it's, it's, it kind of works a bit like a tracker share in the way that you sort of you know the the, the shares kind of tr- kind of track the you know, the value of the company, but there's not there's no actual way of enforcing your you know your right to that property. But people have been prepared to investors prepared to kind of look through that on the assumption that the that the Chinese government would never do that, that they would never. You know, they, they they would never just you know expropriate property from from foreign investors. And can and can um, we continue to make that assumption, Matthew, that they won't expropriate? Yeah, they, they need to find a balance because they, they 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 need the outside world as well. So, I mean, you know, never say never. Um, but if 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 the government was to start you know doing things like that, then they would have real problem you know attracting inward investment. Uh, you know, buying goods and services from 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 other parts of the world. Um, you know, using tech technologies from other parts of the world, which they which they want to do and, and need to do. Yeah, they are integrated into into the economy, the global economy as well. Um, so, so, so I think it's un, it's unlikely that that would happen. Um, but but this does lead into the, a broader question around investing in China and how one takes these factors into account. We in 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 the in in Brunner, we've not typically had much exposure to to China, and that's not because we haven't you know looked hard and hadn't been interested. It's 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 really because we've always struggled with this issue and and the particularly the gov- the governance issue, the, the, the fact that you know, it's it's just quite hard to find companies that have um, you know, the sort of standards that we look for, and 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 the fact that you know you need to put a discount on it. You know, I think I think I think what this episode has shown is that is that you know you you don't have the same protections that you have in other parts of the world, and therefore, as an investor, if you're going to invest in it, you've got to you've got to put a discount on it. Um, the question is how how much of a discount do you put on it? Yeah, you know, before this started, there wasn't much discount. Now there is a very big discount, um, and you can you know on paper buy some you know you know what look like very interesting companies that. For example, some of the technology platforms in China that have very rapid growth and, and long-term, uh, excellent long-term growth prospects on on you know, really quite attractive valuations now. Um, so you know that's yeah, yeah potentially, potentially an opportunity. Uh, but say you just got to decide how much of a discount you want to place uh, for these issues. So how much of a discount would you give, for example, the property company Evergrande? <laughs> well, Evergrande is a uh, yeah, it's a, a kind of slightly different one. And this is this is a, of course the other issue that's happening in China at the moment. I mean, Evergrande is a very big company in terms of you know its impact on its its its, its the size of its balance sheet uh, and the, the the impact that it has on the economy because um, it's the you know, the largest um, real estate developer. It's you know, enormously financially leveraged um, and is almost certainly going to need um, some sort of complicated financial rescue uh, from from the government in order to um, get it out of the situation that it's in. Um, but I think this this, this issue uh, that what we're seeing with happening with Evergrande um, is it, it kind of illustrates the conflict that exists within the Chinese growth model that's existed for, for, for probably 10 or 15 years now. Um, which is that on the one hand the government has uh, you know has this agreement with the with the population tacit agreement that you know you basically double living standards every every 10 years and that that needs six or seven percent economic growth um but at the same time the government also wants growth to be 
what they call what they call it reliable that's the term that they use it's sort of really sort of sustainable what we call sustainable growth in the west which is growth that's driven by consumption um increases in consumer wealth and consumer spending and and technology as well um as opposed to just you know the building of more bridges or the building of more more apartments the problem is that that sort of growth it's very, very difficult to achieve that sort of growth at rates any more than two or three uh, percent. That's what we know from economic history. Uh, so every time they look like they're not, they're not getting near the six or seven percent. The government tends to relax the rules, and and you know you do you get these kind of property booms and these infrastructure booms, uh, but then they row back on it, which is what they've been doing more recently uh, when they want to want to stop it, uh, and then that creates problems for companies like Evergrande that are. That are involved in it, uh, but it is a, it is an inherent conflict, and it, it's not it can't go on forever. At some point, you know, the country will have to move to a lower growth path. That's that's my view. Uh, and and the danger, of course, with that is that the West has become addicted to Chinese investment and Chinese growth uh, in that respect. But what will this realignment that I spoke about? Um, what would it mean for the markets and what would it mean for the West? I mean, could the decoupling of China from the West, if it is a decoupling, um, could it lead to a surge in inflation, for example? So I, I, guess, I guess it sort of depends to what extent it happens. I mean, if, if we're talking about you know, Evergrande being the sort of catalyst for China's growth to decelerate from 7% to 1%, 2%, uh, and that's where it stays for the next, you know, forever then that's a very, very significant event for financial markets uh, because, I mean, that would have significant for everything from, you know, commodity prices and commodity markets to, you know, luxury goods and um, industrial companies that sell, sell into China because uh, it's just such a big market and it's a market that everyone is assuming is going to grow at, you know, more than, you know, more than all the other markets around the world. I'm not sure Evergrande is the catalyst for that. I mean, I, I suspect what happens is is the government, but and I imagine they've got a plan to, you know, to some sort of rescue involving, you know, socialising the liabilities, you know, getting other other private and public um, uh, property companies to take on the liabilities, uh, and then I imagine things will may not carry on exactly as they were before, but. But, but you know in, in in the same sort of way but at some point you know you can't you cannot keep piling on debt forever eventually eventually the, the growth rate does have to slow so we need to be prepared for that um, uh, as as investors but I, I'm not sure it's it's I'm not sure evergrande is the catalyst for that to happen you know right now um so um so yeah I think in terms of your question about inflation uh, I think it, you know, I, I think it's 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 definitely something to be aware of in that if you look at the low rates of inflation that we've had over the last 20, 30 years, um, a, a chunk of that has is a result of globalization and in particular the the entry into the workforce of uh, hundreds of millions of of, of Chinese laborers uh, who've moved from the country into the into the city, which has really started happening in the nineties and then through the two thousands and carried on. Um, that this is the kind of classic emerging market export-led growth model where effectively you, you bring low-cost labor into into the workforce uh, and you you know you, you slowly move up the value chain um, and you drive growth by by exporting goods to the western countries and you do it at a lower cost than, than anyone else can do it and that works for a long time but but once you get to the and of course it has the effect of of 
being quite deflationary. Uh, and that's what we've actually seen happen. The, the price of tradable goods has you know, really been, been, been quite deflationary for, for a long time. That's why we that's why we see these these low rates of inflation in Western countries, because you have tradables goods prices which are flat declining and then actually all domestic service prices the price of your haircut the price of your train ticket you know they those have been going up um and it's the really the average of the two uh, is what is the inflation number that you see and um, now going forward uh, that's we're not going to have that same same deflationary uh, uh force because the labor cost arbitrage doesn't exist in the way that it existed before uh because labor labor costs have gone up so much in china uh, but it, it's not really, it doesn't, the economics don't really stack up in the way they used to. And that's why you're seeing quite a lot of companies actually reshore their supply chains back to the US and back to Europe, um, because it makes sense for them to do that. And obviously the, the geopolitical issues play a role as well in that, but a lot of it is just is actually just driven by driven by economics. Um, so I don't think that's going to lead to a surge in inflation, but I certainly think it's, I th- certainly think it's less deflationary than what we have become accustomed to over the last 10 or 20 years. Okay, well, stay with us and we're going to move to talk about China as a global citizen. And in due course, we will also talk about the wider energy price surge that you made reference to to, uh, as in costs. Uh, But let's take a pause. So, Matthew Tillett, um, will this new posture that we've been speaking about in China change the company as a global citizen. It's no longer a developing or an emerging economy. So when it shifts its position in the global bed, the whole bed wakes up. Yeah, I, I, potentially. I think it's a, it's a real challenge for for China. And, and, and I, 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 to draw on the experience of economic history here, where there's quite a lot of evidence that when, when um, countries move from that sort of emerging market phase or less developed, however you want to call it, to what's usually termed the literal middle income. That's the bit where they sometimes um, it becomes it sometimes becomes difficult to sustain the growth. And it, it goes back a bit to what we were talking about um, just previously around that, you know, that export-led growth model is 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 a well-known uh, formula and it's been followed by many, many countries, but it only goes so far. Once you've once you've pushed that as far as you can, you then need to find new avenues of growth um and you know, china you know i think has gone as far as they can um pretty much with that model uh, and obviously the last 10 years or 15 years or so it's been very much about domestic ex- expenditure on infrastructure and, and real estate uh and you know hence the you know the problems that we're seeing with evergrande and uh you know that again and that you can only do that so so far um because because you know, eventually you've got to you've got to find other things. So I think they they do need to find new 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 avenues for growth, uh, and at, and at some point they'll they'll probably need to settle for a lower a lower rate of growth um, going forward. And it doesn't seem to me that they've quite worked that out yet uh, in terms of you know how that's how they're actually going to uh, handle that transition. Now the E in ESG, Matthew, is important here because we have a big summit coming up tackling climate change. Um, it's going to be held in Glasgow. It's called COP26, starting uh, at the start of November. Uh, can the global community rely on China to fulfil any promises that it may or may not make at COP26? Well, um, they, they, I mean, they've talked about um, 2060 targets, I think, that they, they've put out um, 
uh, net, net zero, I think. Uh, but obviously, that's a long way off. Um, uh, I mean, very long way off. And, and in, in, the, in the medium term or near term, medium term, you know, energy demand in China is, is still growing and still going to grow significantly. And they are still very dependent on, on fossil fuels, um, including, including coal, actually. Coal is you know, a pretty significant chunk of the energy mix. Uh, and, and there's even been you know, new coal, coal power stations built. Um, I think there are even some still being, still, still being built now. Uh, so it, it is a very big polluter uh, and is going to increase rather than decrease um, in, in the near term. Um, so, you know, I think I, I, the way I see it is, we, you know, we, we've, we've got to be realistic about it. You know, they're probably, they're not going, China and other emerging market countries are not going to stop growing because of ESG. You know, they are going to, they, they have got populations that want to get want to get richer, want to get wealthier. Uh, and at the moment, you know, use of fossil fuels is still the easiest way to do that, to, to satisfy the energy demand. Um, so the best thing we can do is try to try to develop the alter- alternatives to fossil fuels as, as quickly as possible so that then we can, you know, we can sort of bring them into the energy mix. Well, that's a really good point to pause for a moment. Uh, and in a moment, we will we'll take on that discussion about carbon and talk about energy prices uh, outside China. Now, in this segment, uh, Matthew, I would like, if we could, to talk about the surge in energy prices. Um, we've seen in this country, in the United Kingdom, queuing for petrol and diesel Um it may be more closely related to Brexit and um, the disappearing um, lorry drivers have gone back to to Europe following the uh, full exit of Britain from the European Union. Uh, but energy prices have been rising all over the world, and that could have an impact, especially on inflation. Yeah, they, you're right. They have been have been rising a lot, and I think there's I think there's sort of two things going on here. There's kind of some short term issues uh, which may well kind of resolve themselves but there's also some um, longer term um, factors as well so i mean in the short term what we're seeing is uh, recovering demand uh, all around the world um, as you know economies uh, reopen but also there's some sort of peculiarities around uh, to do with things like um, gas storage so this for gas the storage levels are unusually low uh, and then at the same time we've also had uh, just a, a not very good period for renewables, uh, particularly here in the UK, actually, where, you know, just the wind hasn't been blowing, uh, which, which you know, is, is, you know, sounds flippant, but I mean, it's actually kind of illustrates, you know, one of the problems with, um, you know, I know our prime minister has, you know, put a lot of weight on wind power being our, you know, how we're going to decarbonize and, and, you know, I'm, I'm supportive of that, but we need to, we need to kind of keep in mind the fact that, you know, it is a, you know, it, it's an intermittent source of energy, and mm-hmm. and you know when it when when it's not available until until we have some kind of um, reliable scale storage solution, you know we are going to be vulnerable uh, to these sorts of the, these these sorts of situations. Because when it's not available, um, you know, suddenly you've got a shortage, and, and I mean it doesn't take very much. You, you know, you only you know, the demand is very inelastic for energy, so you only need a small small shortage, and suddenly the prices. You know, prices go up enormously because they need to in order to ration um, uh, ration ration demand. Um, so that that that's sort of the short term stuff. But then I think longer term, um, there's also you know there, there has been a real lack of investment 
um, in this industry. Uh, initially, it, it, it started around 2014 when we had the crash in the oil price uh, and, and, and gas prices as well, um, which was driven by uh, the, the sort of the immediate cause of it was was the, the growth of U.S. shale, uh, and then the decision by OPEC to effectively try and outcompete shale. Uh, and that really, that was really a sort of regime change as far as the fossil fuel industry was concerned, because it suddenly, suddenly just changed the whole pricing dynamic, uh, and the industry really had to kind of change the way it behaves, because uh, pre- the previous ten years had you know, been an investment boom uh, where they you know, spent loads of money on new projects, many of which have turned out to basically be uneconomic or may make low, low, very low returns. And ever since then, the industry has been been much more focused on financial metrics like return on capital um, and value per share. And so there's been, and, and Shell have been holding the companies to account as well. So there just hasn't been really the same level of investment. But it takes a long time in this industry for those those sorts of things to come through because the, because the projects themselves can take five to ten years to you know, to fully come online, particularly the, the the large projects. So it's only it's only really kind of last year and now that we're coming to the end of some of those big projects that were sanctioned in 2012, 20, 2013, 2014. Um, and so looking forward, we don't really have that much new supply um, coming coming on, and and you know, demand is the demand is is still you know, still still very resilient. Uh, and, and as I said, re- recovering. So to me, like it's that that point is more of a concern actually. Rather, I think those shorter term issues it will probably work themselves out. Some of them are just a bit random. Maybe some of them have to do with you know Brexit and in this country and some of the supply chain issues. Um, but they'll they should work themselves out in time. Uh, but the longer term questions, yeah, that's harder to correct. Um, you know, without new investment. And then on top of that, of course, we have we have you know the ESG dimension as well, which makes it you know, even harder for certainly for listed fossil fuel companies to, um, you know, but basically, you know, most of the ones in Europe are basically not no longer investing um, really in new new fossil fuels because they they need to transition their businesses away from away from fossil fuels. Uh, so I think it's a bit of a wake up call actually for for everyone who's interested in this and and anybody who, you know, politicians, kind of you know, ESG departments, um, because it does show that you know we are still reliant on these. On, on these sources of energy and if we if we yeah. pretend that we're not then the danger is we kind of end up in these situations uh and you know when the general public starts seeing their gas bills go up 50 percent or 100 percent you know they may not be as supportive for you know some of the policies that we need uh, so I, I think everybody needs to be you know, a bit more practical um, about the situation and the challenge that we face Okay. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask you about the performance of the Brunner Investment Trust. But very briefly, do you think interest rates, um, be they American, European or British, uh, are heading north as a result of some of the pressures that we've already spoken about? Well, I, I, I'm not sure they go north as a result of these pressures, actually, because the, the central bank's mandate tends to focus on um, you know, the, what, what they think of as the basic inflation X, all of these things. It's not, it's not really supply side. They don't really respond to supply side driven shocks. It's more it's more demand side, um, and most of this stuff is actually is actually supply side driven, um, and, that, and that's and that's the narrative that they're that they're talking about at the moment. Really, is about, about it all being transitory. Um, I think only the passage of time 
um, will, will, will tell whether it really is transitory. I mean, my view, I think, I think a, a, quite a bit of it is transitory, but I don't think all of it is transitory. I think, I think some of it probably is here to stay, um, and therefore we probably do have slightly higher levels of inflation than we've had in the past. Whether that leads to materially higher interest rates is another question, though, um, because every time central banks have tried to raise these interest rates over the last, well, ever since the financial crisis, um, it's not really worked because tantrums, as soon as they've started tantrums, doing paper it. Paper tantrums yeah. and all that. Um, and that may well happen again, um, in which case we may not get very far down the road of raising interest rates before they have to be, uh, before they have to be cut again. So much for completely independent central banks. Uh, anyway, l- let me ask you about the uh, the Brunner Investment Trust. How has it performed over the last uh, few months? And uh, I see that the share price on the London Stock Exchange is now solidly above ten pounds. Yeah, yeah. Please, please, with the performance of the trust, um, you know, stock picking's been good this year. We outperformed the benchmark, and that's looking at it at the net net asset value level. Um, but as you as you rightly pointed out, the share price as well has has, has actually done better than that because we've. Uh, the discount to, to net asset value has has come in quite a bit, which was um, we're very very pleased to see. Uh, so um, so yeah, we're we're uh, we're very happy with the performance. That's great, Matthew. Thank you very much, Matthew Tillett, of course, the lead portfolio manager for Brunner Investment Trust. And that's all we have time for in this episode of the Connected Investor. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you smash that subscribe button, as the young people say, uh, to, uh, to make sure that you get your um, updated version of the podcast whenever we put one out uh, in wherever you get your podcast, whether that's Acast or Apple or whatever. So thank you all for listening. And remember, you can share your views on what we said. Get in touch with us through the website. It is www.brunner.co.uk. From Matthew and from me, Joe Lynham, thank you. Thank you.